0: We're going to begin our geography quiz this morning. I want to put a map up on the screen. Maybe you've spent some time in the Midwest or the West, or maybe you can read and turn to somebody next to you and identify this body of water, this river that you see on the screen. Turn to somebody next to you and see if you can guess what it is. How many of you knew without looking at it, uh, what this river was? Only a handful of people in the room. This is not a famous river, it's known as the Platte River. It's a significant tributary for the Missouri River. And yet this river has a really interesting history that I'd like to call our attention to this morning. With this image up on the screen, this gives you an idea of what this river is really like. It is very wide, it is very shallow in parts, it's very swampy, and there's no way that you could navigate, because of how shallow it is, um, any kind of boat on this water. And so a guy by the name of Philip Nye, who was a humorist and a journalist in 1889, said that this body of water is a mile wide and an inch what? That's the origin of that phrase, is that in 1889, and in beginning to describe this river, that it was a mile wide and an inch deep. And I think that this river is a really good analogy for many of the ways that we treat relationships in today's day and age, that we've got lots and lots and lots of them But if you look beneath the surface, they don't go very far. Maybe you've got lots of uh, kind of followers or friends in social media, but in actually the way that you know that person, it doesn't actually move or go very deep. Today, I want to introduce you to a portrait, what I think is a beautiful picture of the Gospels, of what deep friendship actually looks like. Last week, we talked about transactional relationships and how we have the tendency in today's consumer society to use people instead of to serve them and to love them. And today, I want to combat another fake form of friendship, which is Shallow relationships or shallow friendships. And as we're walking through this series, we've been talking about the image of a table. We've entitled this Multiplication Tables because the primary tool by which Jesus began to grow his fellowship, his community of believers, was through table fellowship. And so last week we looked at a contrast between the tables of the world and the tables of Jesus, and we noticed that at Jesus' table, things are really different. That you have things like trust and accountability and belonging and laughter and encouragement. These are the kinds of tables that we all hunger to be a part of. And today, we're going to talk about trust by seeing a beautiful portrait of deep friendship with Mark chapter 2. And it says this. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And a few men came, bringing to Jesus a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowds, They made an opening in the roof above Jesus and dug through it and then lowered the mat that the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now there's some teachers of the law sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he said to them, why are you thinking this way? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, And go home. He got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God. And they said, We have never seen anything like this. Let's pray. God, amaze us once again with the power and the healing nature of your one true gospel. Holy Spirit, there are people right now who know exactly what it feels like to be paralyzed. Paralyzed by pain, paralyzed by doubt, paralyzed by fear, paralyzed by sadness or despair. God, will you once again use your restoration and your resurrection power, that we might not only walk again, but that we might leap for joy with you. For we pray all of these things, and we pray them in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said, I want to begin today by asking you to imagine what life was probably like for this man during the time of Jesus. Imagine your life confined to kind of a three foot by five foot mat that you couldn't provide for yourself, that you were completely reliant on anyone and everyone to do everything for you. I mean, we live in a world today where we're making strides, we're not there yet with accessibility and making it easier for people to be able to get around even in the midst of struggles or disability. But imagine what this was like in the ancient world. And also consider what it might have been like, how challenging it was to be this guy's friend. I mean, you had to cook for this person, you had to clean this person, you maybe had to feed this person, you had to take this person and provide for them economically because they couldn't provide for themselves. And add on top of this that in Jesus' day and age, the Greeks, which was the predominant culture of that time, they believed that people with disabilities ought to be killed after they were born. And that the Hebrews believed that you were born with some sort of disease, that something was wrong, that this was some sort of punishment. It was a warped theology that, that God was punishing something you or that your parents had done And so in that society, they would have thought, a lot of them, this person shouldn't even be left alive, and others of them would have thought this person should be ashamed. Imagine what it would have been like to have been this guy's friend. And what we're about to discover in this story, that the goal of friendship is not just to simply meet one another's needs, but that the real goal of friendship is in this beautiful picture of bringing another person into the presence of the living God. The real goal of all of our relationships is to be able to nudge someone closer to God. I love how John Ortberg talks about this passage in a Bible study. He says, he thinks that there are two main questions that we need to wrestle with when we're confronted with this scripture from Mark chapter 2, and this is the first question. The first question is this, who do you let carry your mat? Who do you let your guard down with? Who are you vulnerable with? Who are you a real person with? Who do you hang out with where you don't feel like you're on? Or that you have to pretend? Who are those relationships, like many people talk about today, that are your 3 a.m. friends? Who are those people that you could pick up the phone in the middle of the night when the wheels of your life come careening off of the edge of the street? And you could pick up that phone and you could call them and they wouldn't just not hang up on you, they would be there in an instant. Who carries your mat for you? Who do you let carry your mat? Dr. Henry Cloud, in a book called How People Grow, tells the story of Pastor Joe. I need to be very clear that this is not Pastor Joe Skillen of Peachtree Presbyterian Church. Pastor Joe uh, was a head pastor of a church, and he struggled with a debilitating and chronic addiction. And he struggled with the double nature of his life as a preacher, being before others, and yet the quiet desperation that was his daily struggle with that addiction. Eventually, Dr. Cloud convinced Pastor Joe to go to a group session And in the first couple of the group sessions, Pastor Joe was there, but he did what he tended to do and to try to cover up his addiction. He focused all of his time, all of his energy on trying to help meet the needs of the other people who were in the group. And because of that, he would listen to them share, he would offer advice, he would give condolences and even prayers. But even session after session after session, he himself would not share. And eventually, Dr. Cloud wouldn't let him off the hook. Joe, why don't you tell us your struggles? It took a lot of arm twisting, but eventually Joe began to open up. And he began to talk about not only the pain of the failure of willpower over and over again, but as he shared, he couldn't look at the group, he just stared at the floor. And after Joe was finished sharing, there was this heavy silence in the room. And Joe just kept looking down. Dr. Cloud was looking at the people in that room and he could feel the compassion. He could see it in their eyes. And yet Joe, because he was looking down, wasn't connected to the love that was there and present in that room. And so Henry Cloud said, Joe, Look up. And Joe shook his head. He said, I can't. Joe, look up. And eventually he had the courage to lift his gaze. And when he did, he saw the same thing that the facilitator saw. Tears of understanding. Gentle smiles of compassion. Up until that moment, love for that pastor had only been propositional. It had never been incarnational in the same way that the New Testament talks about love for us. And then Henry Cloud writes this. He said, love can be available to us, but we might not be available to love. There is love, more love, available to you right now than you could possibly know. But you have to be willing to look up. You have to be willing to be vulnerable in order to tap into it. You and I often don't tap into the love that's available to us because we are afraid. We're afraid of being vulnerable. We're afraid that the forgiveness is a facade. We're afraid that people won't like us or accept us. But if we want love, we have to be vulnerable. C.S. Lewis puts it well. He puts it this way. He says this. Love, anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round in hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, dark. Motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Who do you let carry your mat? Who are you willing to trust? To rely on. So the first question is, when was the last t- uh, first question was, you know, who do you let carry your mat? The second question is, when was the last time you crashed through a roof for someone? you got to love the imagery in this story. They had stairs on the external portions of houses in the ancient world. Roofs were not made of slate or any kind of tiles. Uh, Roofs were made of organic material. And so these guys, frustrated at not being able to get close to Jesus, so great is their trust in them, so deep is their hunger to be near to him and to share that with their friend They come up with this crazy idea of clamoring up on the roof and doing a little Home Depot do-it-yourself renovation project on this guy's house. You can imagine if you were hosting this event, this is not what you signed up for. You're pretty sure that the fire marshal is upset at the number of people that are there, that you're violating some kind of code. And then the next thing you know it, you're hanging out. Jesus is preaching And then you look up as you start to see little bits of things start to fall down and you see these hands start to pull away at the roof as they lower this guy on a mat. And in that moment, and if you have your own Bibles, I would love for you to circle, underline, exclamation point, verse five, because verse five to me is the hallmark of this story. Because it says in that moment that they lay him down when Jesus saw their faith. Notice a couple things in this. One, faith is the kind of thing, trust is the kind of thing that can be seen. It isn't something that you just say. But also secondly, notice whose faith that it is. We know nothing of the faith of this paralyzed man. What we do know is the incredible faithfulness and the trust of his dear, dear, deep friends. That's what friendship is supposed to look like. People who will crash through a roof for you. About 10 months ago, my wife Kelly um, went into open heart surgery at the age of 42 years old. I don't know if I have permission to share how old you are, but I just did to thousands of people. (laughs) At the age of 42 years old for a surgery that typically happens, aortic valve replacement for somebody in their late 70s, this was a chronic condition. We knew that one day, one day this may come, one day we thought it was still a ways off, but in the first quarter of last year, all of a sudden her heart started to deteriorate and it was time. We had a moment, Kelly had a lifetime, And we had a couple of months to kind of prepare emotionally and spiritually for that surgery. And so as a family, I think we were all ready when the moment that it finally came. But I can tell you the moment that we weren't ready for It was a week later, and Kelly was on her first day at home in the house. I was out of the house. I was leading a funeral um, at the church for uh, dear family friends. And Ashby, late morning, came crawling up towards Kelly's bed, got close to her mother, cocked her head, and said, Mom, why is one eye really big and one eye really small? And we thought in that moment that Kelly was having a stroke. And so we rushed immediately to the hospital. It's the only time I've ever been in an ER where they didn't even let you sit down. You're explaining at the counter what's going on and they just keep moving you back to a bed. And while the immediate nurses and doctors were starting to attend to her and to test to try to see what was going on, I stepped out of the room and I took out my phone and I called a good friend named Rick. Rick was an executive at the hospital and I said, Rick, I'm scared. I wasn't ready for this one. And he said, I know, but we'll be there. And when he said, we'll be there, I didn't really know what that meant. But it was probably only about 20 minutes later that the curtain of the ER room came flying open, and the head of neurology was in there in his running clothes. And then the head of radiology was kind of hot on his heels, and expert after expert who were a part of this friendship came in and attended to my wife. We discovered that it was not a stroke. Um, It was just a nicked carotid artery, no big deal. (laughs) Our cardiologist later, kind of in referring to all this kind of attention that was on her, said, I don't know if you know this lady, but you're kind of a big deal. And do you know that's what friends do, real deep friendships, you treat someone like a big deal even if we're really not. I mean, you're a big deal to me, don't get me wrong, but (laughs) even if we're not. Here's the deal. We invite trust when we are vulnerable. We instill trust when we crash through. And so John Ortberg is right that at the end of the day, in light of this passage, that the church ought to be at its core an irrational society of mat carriers and roof crashers. It's what our world desperately wants. It's what we most of all need. I'd like to show you an image of our daughter Danica's 6th grade basketball team from last year in Newport Beach, California. And uh, this was kind of our family's first foray into um, youth sports. And um, as you can imagine, 6th grade basketball is not the most technical of um, contests. I'm going to my, I remember being at my first game, I'm sitting next to Kelly, and as the game starts, I'm leaning over to Kelly, I'm like, that's a travel, that's a travel, that's a double dribble, that's a travel. And she's like, will you be quiet? I kid you not, I watched one girl take seven steps with the basketball and for three and a half quarters, the ref did not call a single travel. The whole game, it was basically like an NBA game, if you kind of know what I'm talking about. They never call it in that game either. But in the middle of the third quarter, and you also have to realize that in sixth grade girls basketball, they only score like 10 points, right? And it's like 10 to 9, it's really close, we're down by one, and Danica's about at the free throw line, she catches the ball. She turns around and pivots. She slightly moves her left pivot foot. She shoots, she swishes it. The place goes crazy. We stand up and start cheering and all of a sudden the ref blows the whistle, calls off the shot and calls a travel. (laughs) And something in me just snaps. And I yell at the top of my voice, are you kidding me? (laughs) Whole place was as silent as a tomb in that moment, and every single head snapped and started to stare at me. The refs were staring at me. The coaches were staring at me. The teams were staring at me. My wife's trying to pull me down towards the seat, and and my daughter's going like this. Do I back down in that moment? Of course not. Are you kidding me? Now you call a travel? I yell at the top of a voice. That's right. Your pastor is that guy at a girls basketball game. Not my finest moment. What you also need to know is that my daughter Danica is more mature than I am. And so we're driving home later kind of quiet in the car. She says, Dad, yeah, you know you're a pastor, right? Yeah. Dad, you know you're not supposed to behave like that, right? Yeah. And then she said something I'll never forget. She said, but Dad... Thanks for being for me. I don't ever want my daughter to think that I care more about what other people think more than I do about being for her. If dad's for us, who can be against us? Did you notice it? Do you know what deep friendship really does? It means that we have an irrational commitment to carrying mats and crashing through roofs. And I think more than anything, we need to be as a church, not just a polite society of kind people. We need to demonstrate that irrational commitment to being for the people we love. Because here's what happens. In verse five, the portion of this text that I really wanted you to focus on, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, again, remember, a man that shouldn't be alive, a man that should be ashamed of his condition, Jesus says, son. He becomes part of God's family. That's what love does. And maybe your family's a mess. Maybe your life is a mess right now. Maybe nobody knows it because you're not very vulnerable with it. But at some point, you gotta let somebody carry your mat. And if we want to be a church, we need to be the kind of church that breaks through barriers to go places where we don't necessarily belong and that we show up and that we're there and that we're for the people we love. I don't want to be a pastor of a church that's a mile wide and an inch deep. You can't travel on a body of water like that. It's too shallow. And it's no way to really live. And so let's pray. Our loving God and Father, I pray in this moment that you will embolden your people to have that irrational commitment to crashing through some roofs and give us the power and the courage to be vulnerable to let people carry our mats. Forgive us, God, for our shallow friendships, our unwillingness to trust you and to trust one another. And so put faith, God, at the heart of our commitment to one another and to you. And so Holy Spirit, will you enable a person right now to be vulnerable And maybe they've never been vulnerable to you to say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. And God, help us to be a kind of community where we see that the goal of our friendship is not just to meet one another's needs, but to bring people into your presence. And help us not just to say that, but to live it out in full view of them all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.